Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Welcome to today's Democracy Sausage podcast brought to you by the Australian Studies Institute and the Crawford School of Public Policy, both at the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenny, and for today's episode, we're bringing you something special. Last week at the National Press Club, I had the pleasure of convening the 2020 Australia and the World Lecture. This annual event aims to promote a broader conversation about Australia's place in the world and is one of the founding programs of the Australian Studies Institute. This year we were delighted to hear from Pat Turner AM, CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation and lead convener of the Coalition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Community Controlled Peak Organisations. In her lecture, The Long Cry of Indigenous Peoples to be Heard, A Defining Moment in Australia, Pat discusses the poor state of reconciliation and what being heard means in the Australian context. Introduced by ANU Vice-Chancellor Professor Brian Schmidt, Ms Turner explains why 2020 is a defining moment for the nation, before taking questions from journalists in attendance. As she says, she's not here to make you feel comfortable. But we hope you enjoy this address from one of Australia's most courageous leaders and a tireless advocate for Indigenous Australians. Thank you, Mark, and thanks also to the National Press Club for facilitating this, the signature public lecture for the Australian Studies Institute at the Australian National University. It's a real honor to introduce our speaker, Pat Turner AM, to deliver the 2020 Australia and the World Lecture. This year has been so hard for so many, and yet our performance as Australians relative to the rest of the world has been strong and our society has remained united. 
But the project of nation building is never finished. And while the effort to overcome the coronavirus is dominated, there are many fronts on which we must, must continue to push forward. The next crucial step towards a fairer, more prosperous nation will only be possible once we are honest with ourselves. For too long, we have not squared up with modern Australians' origins, the violent dispossession of First Peoples, the crimes and atrocities, the slights and exclusions from our politics, and their ongoing disadvantage, which of course is measured in high incarceration rates, deaths and custodies, shorter life expectancy, lower wealth, education, and more. And yet for all of that, Indigenous Australians continue to seek that recognition and continue to extend the hand of reconciliation to the rest of us. Pat Turner is a truly great and humble leader within the Australian community. For more than five decades, she has worked tirelessly to promote the well-being of Indigenous Australians as a researcher, as an administrator, as an inspirational Indigenous woman, and as a universally respected advocate. Most recently, this has been seen her chairing the umbrella body of indigenous organizations around Australia, the Coalition of Peaks, to design new and expanded Closing the Gap targets. This is vital, overdue work led with grace, humility, and urgency. In this of all years, when the Black Lives Matter movement has surged forward, I cannot think of a more eminent more suitable Australian to deliver the 2020 Australian Studies Institute, Australia and the World Lecture. Ladies and gentlemen, Pat Turner. Welcome everyone. My name is Pat Turner. I am the daughter of an Arunda man and a Gadanji woman. I am also proud to have grown up in Alice Springs. I am the CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. I also have the privilege of being elected the first lead convener of the Coalition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Community Controlled Peak Organisations. I would like to start by acknowledging the country and traditional owners of the land we are meeting on today. We are meeting on Ngunnawal country. I pay my respects to the elders past and present and thank them for their continuing openness to have us live, work and meet on their land. The Indigenous practice of acknowledging your place and the place you are on is something that has existed for thousands of generations. It is a way of being heard. Acknowledgement of country is about respecting and hearing the unwritten history of place. It is an assertion of our unceded sovereignty. I would also like to thank Professors Sully Wheeler, Brian Schmidt, Paul Pickering and Mark Kenny of the Australian National University for inviting me to give this year's Australia and the World Annual Lecture, the National Press Club, for supporting this important national conversation. Our cry to be heard. Indigenous peoples across the globe share similar histories. We share deep attachments to our land, our cultures, our languages, and our kin and families. 
These attributes have developed over millennia to harmonise with the natural environment, manage and sustain natural resources and to facilitate meaningful and healthy lives. They reflect core values that have served us and the wider world remarkably well. Indigenous people also share histories of colonisation, violent dispossession, overt and disguised racism, trauma, extraordinary levels of incarceration and genocidal policies including child removal, assimilation and cultural heritage and linguistic destruction. These histories are, were and are real and alive, both in the way we see the world and in the political and social structures that have been imposed upon us. In last year's Boyer Lectures, Rachel Perkins quoted poet Ujiru Newnuckle, let no one say the past is dead. The past is all around us. And Rachel cited her father, my uncle, Charles Perkins, who would say, we cannot live in the past. The past lives in us. In other words, we cannot forget the past. We must all work to make sense of it, to come to terms with it. We must work to overcome the intergenerational consequences that are all too real for so many Indigenous peoples. In his 1968 Boyer Lectures, anthropologist Bill Stanner identified the propensity of non-Indigenous Australians to not see, to forget and to actively disremember the consequences of colonisation. He termed this the great Australian silence. What he didn't say, but it was inferred, is that this structural silence necessarily means also shutting out Indigenous voices. Four years later, Stanner quoted Dr Herbert Moran, surgeon, medical innovator and first captain of the Wallabies, who wrote in 1939... We are still afraid of our own past. The Aborigines we do not like to talk about. We took their land, but then we gave them in exchange the Bible and tuberculosis. With, for special bonus, alcohol and syphilis. Was it not a fair deal? Anyhow, nobody ever heard them complain about it. Nobody ever heard them complain about it? Of course, we now know that there has been a long history of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander complaint, protestation, resistance, resolve and repudiation. 250 years ago, Lieutenant James Cook ordered his sailors to open fire on two remonstrating Weagle men as they came ashore. From that day to the present day, courageous Indigenous men and women have sought to be heard regarding the ownership and the meaning of this land and the rights of its First Peoples. Pemawoy, Yagan, Multigutta, Truganini, William Cooper, Bill Ferguson, Eddie Marbo, Charles Perkins, Jack Davis, Evelyn Scott, 
lower to O'Donoghue and others, confronted and broke through Stanner's great Australian silence. However, for most part, our lived experience has been that we have not been heard. Hearing involves more than merely being allowed to speak. It involves more than merely listening. It requires respectful engagement, two-way communication, and ultimately, action. It requires the non-Indigenous majority, most importantly governments, to act on what they have been told and to explain their actions in response. It is an essential ingredient in the shared decision-making of policies, of programs, and crucially, it is the essential ingredient for our self-determination, Australia and the world. How should we assess Australia's comparative performance? If we take as our measure the response of governments in other liberal democracies, democratic nations rather, with Indigenous minorities, we are lagging. While cross-national comparisons are far from straightforward, it is fair to say that the institutions and structures that allow Indigenous peoples to be heard are much better developed in these nations than in Australia. In Canada, Section 35 of its constitution recognises the inherent right of Indigenous people to self-government. There are currently 25 self-government agreements in operation across Canada. A further 50 or so negotiations are ongoing and in many cases are being negotiated in conjunction with modern treaties. In New Zealand, the signatories of the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840 was followed by its dismissal by the British colonists. They failed and the Maori were not silenced. In 1975, the decision of the New Zealand Parliament to establish the Waitangi Tribunal reinvigorated the treaty process and led to a swathe of negotiated settlements and, organ and compensation packages. That process is ongoing. In Norway, Sweden and Finland, the Sami people have access to their own elected parliaments. Subnational bodies with subsidiary functions to promote political initiatives for Sami and carry out the administrative tasks delegated from national authorities. The common feature of all these arrangements is to provide Indigenous peoples with structures that ensures they will always be properly heard by the relevant nation state. The structures in these nations do not of themselves resolve all the differences between the dominant and the Indigenous people. But they do provide a mechanism where those differences can be articulated, considered and ultimately addressed. Australia does not have these mechanisms, but should have. Apart from the ethical arguments in favour of alignment with other liberal democracies, there is a further pragmatic reason for Indigenous Australians to be heard. Australia is a middle power, a liberal democracy. We are fortunate to have an independent judiciary and a robust public realm 
where we debate ideas and are free to express a wide range of views. Yet we face an increasingly turbulent and uncertain world where global challenges such as climate change, deadly pandemics and nuclear war are no longer unthinkable. The strategic environment and our economic future appear to be in serious tension. Popularism, populism and authoritarianism increasingly seem to be the default political response to uncertainty and flux. In such a world, it is in Australia's interests to present a politically coherent and ethical profile to the world. We should seek, as Gareth Evans argued in the first lecture in this series two years ago, to advance our national interests through proactive global engagement rather than a myopic focus on our backyard and more obvious bilateral interests. I am firmly with Gareth Evans that our capacity to project influence and shape external events is to a significant extent a function of how we are perceived by the international community. One of the most obvious and off-used metrics is Australia's racist past and its current treatment of its First Nations peoples. The men, and they were all men, who drafted our constitution overwhelmingly held views we consider racist today. Our constitution was and continues to be a document built on racist foundations. How can we confidently raise concerns about human rights, whether it be the treatment of the Uyghurs in China or the death penalty in Iran or mass incarceration and police overreach in the US or the restraints on freedom of expression in Hong Kong while failing to hear the cries of Indigenous Australians for justice, fairness and equality. In a world where the economic security of all Australians is dependent in large measure on our capacity to project influence and soft power, why would we tie one hand behind our back? The struggle to be heard in Australia. Australia knows that there is unfinished business in relation to our First Nations peoples. Since the early 1970s, every major institution established by government to hear First Nations peoples has been dismantled or hijacked by government. When what we said became inconvenient or uncomfortable to the nation state, our voice was undermined, supplanted or discredited before then being abolished. For many years now, the notion of constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians has been front and centre in the national political debate. Governments have made promises, commissioned reports, initiated multiple inquiries and still failed to come to produce an outcome. In 2017, 
we mark the 50th anniversary of the 1967 referendum, which had withdrawn two adverse references to my people in the Constitution. That same year, following extensive Indigenous-led engagements with Indigenous communities across the nation, Indigenous peoples developed the proposals outlined in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It proposed the constitutionally entrenched mechanism, a voice to Parliament on laws about my people. It was a mechanism to facilitate engagement, dialogue and discussion between those so far excluded and those who are elected to make laws for the people of Australia. The response from government was, once again, not to hear our cry. This treatment merely serves to reinforce and confirm the torment of our powerlessness, to borrow a phrase from the Uluru Statement. We were not and we have not been heard. But we persist. We always do. In late 19, uh, 2018, a group of, Australia, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled peak organisations covering health, legal services, child protection, native title, land, disability, hearing and education joined together to be heard on Closing the Gap. Closing the Gap is the headline policy for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Initially agreed only by Australian governments in 2008, its aim is to achieve equality for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples with other Australians. It is a policy that governments say is for us, about us, but until now we have had no formal way of having a genuine say and being heard. We were deeply unhappy with the way governments were proceeding with what they termed a refresh of the Closing the Gap policy in 2016. Governments said they were consulting with Indigenous people across Australia about this next phase. But we could not see our views had been taken account of in the government's proposals. Governments were still making decisions about us, without us. To his credit, Prime Minister Scott Morrison heard us. He agreed that we needed an urgent and different approach. Without strong and public leadership from a Prime Minister, the task for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to be heard is that much harder nearly impossible. The Prime Minister led the Council of Australian Governments, as it was then, to agree to a formal partnership with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled representatives to share decision-making on closing the gap. We formed the Coalition of Peaks. That coalition has now over 50 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled member organisations spanning our key interests across the country. This is a significant point. Indigenous people formed the Coalition of Peaks on our terms 
as an act of self-determination. We decide our own membership criteria. We set our own rules for how we operate and make decisions. We have our own secretariat that is accountable to us, providing policy advice, furthering our interests, not that of governments. None of the coalition of peak members or the people who are at the table sit as individuals. We are accountable to our boards and our members and we act in their interests. We were not chosen, but nor are we accountable to government. I say this is a significant point because it is a critical precondition for Indigenous people being heard. We must choose who speaks for us, how and on what issues. As soon as governments interfere with our right to decide how we are represented, our voices become muffled, confused and ultimately silenced. Together with all Australian governments, including local government, the Coalition of Pigs negotiated two vitally important agreements, committing governments to change the way that they work with us so that we can be heard. This is the first time that intergovernmental agreements have been agreed with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representatives. The Partnership Agreement on Closing the Gap, which commenced in March 2019 and cements the partnership agreed to by COAG. The National Agreement on Closing the Gap, which was negotiated under the Partnership Agreement and was launched on the 30th of July this year by the Prime Minister and me. The National Agreement does not include everything the Coalition of Pigs wanted nor everything our people need. It was a negotiation after all. However, it does include historic commitments that go to Indigenous people being heard. First, the National Agreement extends the shared decision-making principles of the Partnership Agreement and applies the commitment to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on all policies and programs that impact on us. It is a commitment to Indigenous people being heard through a series of formal partnership and shared decision-making arrangements, where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people choose our own representatives and operate in accordance with our own internal governance structures and are supported to have our own independent advice. The second important commitment of government relates to the strengthening of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled sectors to deliver services and programs to our people. It is increasingly accepted that our community-controlled organisations get better engagement, deliver better outcomes and employ more of our people. What is less understood is why. It is because our community-controlled services hear us. Our own services are designed by us to hear our needs and to act on our solutions. The community-controlled sector 
is built on Indigenous people being heard. Third, the national agreement includes new levels of accountability on governments and a high degree of transparency for the way they work with us. Because the way government works with us, governments work with us, is critically important. It has not been an easy road to reach consensus on the national agreement on closing the gap between governments and the coalition of peaks. But the way that we have done it means that we have had the opportunity to be heard. The risks to being heard. Serious risks to our being heard still lie ahead. The partnership and national agreements provide a platform for a new era in Indigenous affairs based on genuine partnership in decision-making. In the early days, though, it is early days, though, the national agreement on closing the gap has still to be implemented, and words are never enough. In the meantime, there are several high-profile instances where Indigenous voices are still being ignored, set aside and not heard. The recent decision by Rio Tinto to destroy the caves at Duke and Gorge and the failure of both the Western Australian and Commonwealth governments to protect this site of international significance continues to reverberate. While the Senate inquiry is welcome, Indigenous peoples are yet to be provided with a convincing explanation of what, how and why our voices were ignored, not just by Rio Tinto, but also by the responsible Indigenous and non-Indigenous Cabinet Ministers. That site, like so many others, is now gone. It cannot be replaced. The pain and the suffering are magnified because those landowners responsible for country were not heard. While the Western Australian Government is reviewing its legislation, there is no formal way for Aboriginal people to be heard properly and to share decisions on the draft bill to protect our heritage. Aboriginal people are being treated like any other stakeholder and on a similar basis as the mining industry, but without the resources or political clout that the mining industry has in its dealings with governments. The next key example is the Commonwealth Government's latest response to the cry for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. It is high on rhetoric and well rehearsed. Co-design, empowerment, doing things with us rather than to us. But if we look closely, the practice continues to be poles apart. After the initial rejection of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, what is now unfolding is a convoluted and flawed process. This process is based on advice being given to the Commonwealth Government for it to decide on a model of a voice. It involves government 
selecting its own advisers, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, three separate committees, including a senior advisory committee, a uh, senior advisory group, with potentially overlapping roles and a terms of reference that impose limits on wider discussion by participants. I am one of those individuals appointed to the senior advisory group. That we are there as individuals, not representing or accountable to our own constituencies, organisations, membership or cultural groups, appointed by governments to support the minister, immediately compromises the strength of our voices, of us being heard as Indigenous peoples. The Secretariat to support, uh, support for the groups steering the process is provided by the Commonwealth National Indigenous Australians Agency, which is accountable to the government. It is important to note that these arrangements are not consistent with the commitments from government to shared decision-making in the National Agreement on Closing the Gap. Another clue in the shortcomings is in the name, Senior Advisory Group. Its job is to provide advice to government, and this is not shared decision-making. Co-design and shared decision-making are not the same thing. And giving advice and shared decision-making are very different things. It is true that the Minister for Indigenous Australians has committed publicly to an engagement process with our peoples and other Australians on models of the, for the voice. But the options that will be put for a national conversation will be decided by the government, not by us. How our voice is heard must be properly negotiated between government and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representatives who are agreed by us. As it is currently proposed, final decision-making on our voice is to occur behind closed doors by government. There is also the matter of the scope of the government's proposed voice. The model of the voice being envisaged by government is not one that is constitutionally enshrined and not one that would speak to the parliament and is unlikely to be based in legislation. It would be a voice that speaks to government. This is how this intersects with the partnership structures set up under Closing the Gap and will work with now the well-established role of the coalition of PECs is not clear and needs to be openly discussed. It is also not clear and needs to be openly discussed how another voice to government will intersect with the roles and relationships of our already many voices to government that have been established over decades and strengthened since the demise of ATSEC. This includes land councils, native title rep bodies and other community controlled peak bodies like NACHO and SNAKE, the National Voice of Our Children. It also includes many regional governance models that have been established. What will happen to these dedicated 
expert subject matter and regionally based voices? Will government get to pick and choose whose voice it listens to, when and on what, leading to a silence of some? A compelling case for shifting away from a voice to parliament to a voice to government has not been made. It was a decision by the government and we were not asked or involved. Whether intended or not, the outcome of the government-controlled process for establishing a voice is likely to be disjointed, conflicted and thus counterproductive. Most concerning of all is the risk of considerable division arising between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in respect, of the government's, in respect to the government's voice. And this is unacceptable. The lesson from past failures is that Indigenous people have to be able to set up their own structures and reach decisions in their own time about how they are to be represented. In fact, no different to anyone else in our society, not having governments to decide the outcome. That extends to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people being able to negotiate with governments to agree an outcome. This has happened before in Australia, when the native title legislation was negotiated in 1993, and of course, on the partnership and national agreements on closing the gap. However, notwithstanding the new partnership being heralded, it is not happening in respect of the government-led process for establishing the voice. I am reminded of my school days, watching boys kick empty cans down a dusty road in Central Australia. Our defining moment. My message today is that Australia has reached a defining moment. The finalisation of the partnership and national agreements on closing the gap marks not an end point, but the start of a new journey. The commitment to shared decision-making between government and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is not to be applied only at the discretion of governments when and on what governments determine. The development of an Indigenous voice to Parliament and laws designed to protect our heritage should not be an exception. The proposed voice to government, like many other incarnations that have gone before, will not stand the test of time and be doomed to fail unless these foundational shortcomings are addressed urgently. As I see it, to take that forward step, we must address three key challenges. The first challenge relates to the full implementation of the National Agreement on Closing the Gap which is binding on all governments. The commitments within those agreements require a complete overhaul of the way governments do business. Governments need to reimagine the way they work with us, our organisations and our communities. They need to examine every aspect of their dealings with us and apply the binding commitments of the national agreement. Every policy proposal must start with the question, how does this meet the obligations in the national agreement? Anything less 
is a failure to deliver on the potential in the national agreement. The second challenge relates to the proposal on a voice. The current process for its development must be redefined. All options must be underpinned by genuine shared decision-making between governments and Indigenous people. We must always choose our own representation and those representatives must negotiate and agree with governments on a model that will give, us, give rise to our, genu to our genuine voice. Any model being weighed up must consider the current landscape of Indigenous representation and voice, including the developments on closing the gap. The two challenges that lay before governments are not radical. They are not unreasonable particularly when compared with the institutional arrangements that exist in comparable liberal democracies. The third challenge is to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. It is a challenge I apply to myself. To seize the opportunity in front of us, we must act in our collective interests. We must demand that governments apply the commitments in the National Agreement on Closing the Gap to all its interactions with us, our organisations and communities. A benchmark of shared decision-making has been established in the National Agreement. We must only engage with governments when they demonstrate they are prepared to meet it. We are the best form of accountability and we must hold governments to account. In considering how we take forward the government's proposal for a voice, we must openly debate the options in front of us. We cannot be single-minded, rejecting or talking down the efforts or ideas of others. A pursuit of a singular vision will only limit what's possible. Anything else will leave us vulnerable to a short-term structure that can be dismantled following an election or the receipt of uncomfortable advice. We are at a critical juncture. As a nation, we face many challenges, but none of the more significant, but one of the mo more significant relates to how First Nations peoples are acknowledged and heard. If you have truly heard me today, as an Aboriginal person, some of the things I have said will be difficult and should challenge you. I am not here to make you comfortable. Change does not happen when we are comfortable. It is also not comfortable for me. The life of an Indigenous person, struggling with the cry of our people to be heard, is not an easy one and speaking out is rarely received by applause. My uncle, Charles Perkins, who was also my mentor, never lived a comfortable life. Charlie was a fearless spokesperson. He said what needed to be said at the time it needed to be said. His life was uncomfortable and he made all Australians feel uncomfortable. But progress was made 
because all of us were prepared to listen and respond. We need to do the same now in facing the challenges and opportunities that are before us. We need to apply the new benchmark that has been set on closing the gap and extend it to how we respond to the Uluru Statement from the heart. If First Nations peoples are not able to be heard, Australia will continue to be diminished at home and in the world. Thank you. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Thank you very much, Pat Turner, for that uh, stirring speech. I think it's a case of uh, when speaking out certainly deserves a strong applause, and I'm sure that's what you've got here today. Um, We have a number of questions from journalists. I might start by just asking a a general question. Uh, You talked about the past and how we need to face up to it. You said the past, or you quoted uh, someone saying the past lives lives within us. Um, Are we still afraid of the past? Is that what is stopping this nation? And how damaging was the arrival of the term the black armband view of history? Because it was used so effectively really to dismiss, to really shut down a debate about the origins of this country. The black armband view promulgated by... former Prime Minister Howard and uh, other supporters like him, um, they um, they did a lot of damage. Uh, It didn't... It put the the brakes on and didn't allow for the free speech that the Liberal Party so eloquently promotes Hmm. um, as an underlying, you know, basic principle or premise for why they exist. They believe in free speech. And yet when we were asserting our history, um, we got torn down with the black black armband view and um, and we, you know, were denigrated. And a lot of journalists were involved in that, especially the right-wing ones. So uh, the second part of your... The first part of your question... I was just about whether there is a, a sort of a, a preternatural fear in this country, really, of having that debate, whether we are not... We, we don't want to go there because it's uncomfortable, the fear of I history think so. Itself. I think there is still a discomfort with hearing about the true history of this country. But I think for my people, 
it's got to be a process whereby we can engage in truth-telling by and also come to deal to terms with our own traumas and our own healing and we need to be supported in that but Australia needs to hear it and Australia needs to uh, accept it because it's you know we have a shared history in this country and uh, for people who've only lived here a couple of hundred years uh, they've certainly dominated us and we really do need to be able to find our place as the people who lived here for 60,000 years and formed our own systems and carried out our own uh, lifestyles, uh, which have been severely disruptive, severely disruptive since the British colonised our country. So I think there's a lot of room for truth-telling and for uh, all Australians to hear that, but I think in... Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people sharing uh, their histories. They have to be supported uh, properly because of the intergenerational trauma that will arise and the, you know, distress that it will cause. I know myself, you know, I get upset when I think about my parents and how they were treated. What's your suspicion about mainstream Australia, though, because... Uh, if we think back to the 1967 referendum and even 50 years later to the debate in 2017 on marriage equality, we find the political class, or at least the parliamentary class, some way behind public opinion. Do you have a, a sense that that is also oh, the sure case with the, the case. voice? I am very sure that's the case. I think Australians are sick and tired of hearing about the, the gap in the, uh, you know, the life expectancy, the poor health outcomes, the poor housing, the poor everything that faces our people. And, um, you know, they want it fixed. The Australian public want it fixed. But you've got to stop... Governments have got to stop all this spin doctoring about $30 billion a year being spent on Aborigines. Most of that goes to bureaucracies, as far as I'm concerned. And it's a nonsense equation anyway if you take 3% of every portfolio in the Commonwealth and say that's what's spent on us because we equate to 3% of the population. It's just absolute nonsense. got no credibility whatsoever and the Productivity Commission ought to be ashamed of itself. So, you know. Thank you. First question from David Crowe. Thanks very much, uh, Mark. Uh, thank you, Pat, for your speech. David Crowe from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Uh, because we've reported some of your speech already today, there is a response from the Indigenous Affairs Minister, uh, Ken White, through a spokesman. And I thought I'd just ask you about that, but also about what you see as the next steps on The Voice. The response from the Minister was, ultimately, if anybody is going to advise the government or the parliament, it must be established and accepted by government. It's pretty clear that you don't accept that it's got to be established by government. Yeah, I don't accept that. I think that we are very capable, as we've shown in the Coalition of Peaks, of deter and shown many other times. You know, we did it with the native title negotiations in the early 90s. And, um, you know, if we're going to have our blues, we have them. Fair enough. Anybody has blues. We're not the only people. Um, but, you know, we still got it done. Can I follow that up then and just ask, you, you mentioned the Coalition of the Peaks not chosen by government, doesn't answer to government. Is that actually a better model for a voice? Should we start uh, from scratch, start again with the whole process? Because you've, we have the Coalition of Peaks, 
we have a structure being formed now. Is that a better structure for the future? Look, it's worked for the closing the gap. So, the, you know, a number of the PECs got together early and wrote to all of the First Ministers about closing the gap and the way it was going and how concerned we were of being, you know, left out. And we wanted to be a part of it. Um, so we grew to 50 and we determined that, you know, but we have never said that we are the voice. We want all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to determine who they want to negotiate with the government on a voice and the form that should take. Greg Brown. Greg Brown from The Australian. Thank you for your speech, Ms Turner. Um, is it fair to say, would you accept any other sort of voice model that falls short of the principles of the Uluru Statement of the Heart? No. Is, well, given that this coalition government has ruled that out... You know, are we at risk of a dead end here? Well, has it really ruled it out? I mean, Malcolm Turnbull rejected the Uluru Statement from the heart. Uh, Minister Ken Wyatt, who was a Cabinet Minister, has established a process. And what I'm saying today, you know, I'm hoping that the Minister takes on board in terms of it is our right to determine who our representatives are. And, you know, I've had plenty of discussions with Minister Wyatt and I hope to have plenty more. You know, we can have a robust discussion and disagree and agree and, you know, move forward. If we don't work these things out, though, in a robust uh, manner and come to some sort of agreement, we are going to lose the people when we go out to ask them what they want. So they have that, made it clear already. Does that mean you would be willing to effectively campaign against any reforms the government proposes, any voice to government well, that would fall what they short come up with. the Uluru I think that there's a lot of people um, who see the merit of a voice to parliament. Thank you. Uh, Shubha Krishnan. Thanks, Pat. Shubha Krishnan from SBS World News. Um, the seats of Lingiari and Solomon are set to be merged in the Northern Territory um, into one seat covering the entire electorate and represented by just one person. Um, more than 40% of, of the people in Lingiari are Indigenous. Are you concerned Indigenous voices on the national stage won't be heard and will be diminished? And what more can be done to get greater Indigenous representation in Parliament? Well, the party should pre-select Aboriginal candidates for a start. There's been non-Indigenous candidates from the Northern Territory in the National Parliament for far too long. So, first of all, the parties in the Northern Territory contesting the election should be selecting skilled, capable Aboriginal candidates to run for the seats. I am concerned that there will be a lessening of the voice. It's a huge percentage, a huge concentration of Aboriginal people in that electorate and I am concerned, but, you know, um, I mean, I think the big disproportionate thing here is Tasmania with all of its, you know, representation compared to the ACT and, uh, and the Northern Territory. But they're much broader issues for those with much uh, more expertise in electoral and uh, electoral reform than me to uh, be the judge of. But I am concerned about our people's voices being lost. And there's a, a, a bill before the Senate um, currently to block that merger. Um, the Greens have come out in support of it, the National Party and Labor, but we haven't heard anything from the, the Liberal government. Um, are you concerned by that? Well, you know, governments, uh, it's really hard to read sometimes which way they're going to go. 
but they should be concerned about the uh, lessening of the voice of Aboriginal people. But I'm serious when I say to all the political parties in the Northern Territory, lift your game and nominate competent Aboriginal representatives to run for Parliament. Anna Henderson. Uh, Anna Henderson from ABC News. You mentioned the Dukan Gorge, the yeah. destruction of that site. Dukan, yeah. What, Dukan, what is your view on what can be done in future to protect such sites and whether or not there needs to be anything more at a federal level in terms of legislation or other regulation that can reach across the country and ensure that that is never uh, the case again? Well, there is legislation and Susan Lay chose not to even address it. She could have put in an emergency stop, but, you know, two phone calls from Richard Bradshaw, the lawyer for the group, uh, to her office went unanswered. I'll ring you back, they said. Not good enough when you've got a serious situation like this and you're administering that sort of uh, serious legislation. So the laws have to be strengthened, not only at the Commonwealth level, but at the state and territory level as well. The reason the Northern Territory's got pretty good protection is because it's based on the principles with the Northern Territory Land Rights Act, which is Commonwealth legislation. And our, uh, you know, my predecessors, Bill Gray and people like that, made sure that uh, those principles were adhered to when we were negotiating with the Northern Territory at those, uh, uh, at those times. But every state government needs to do it, and they need to do it in equal decision-making partnership with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are directly affected by cultural heritage protection. So we want to sit around the table with Susan Lee and her state and territory counterparts as equals and discuss the best way forward. She's got a review by Graham Samuel. He's just going to recommend another review. And we need the very best person who actually understands cultural heritage protection uh, to lead that review. Um, so, yes, I think there's an awful lot more that can be done and needs to be done and done as a matter of urgency, but they can't do it without us. You know, Ben Wyatt cannot continue to put this legislation out there in WA and not have full participation by Aboriginal people in WA because they've got the lived experience. The mineral, the mining industry has ripped out billions upon billions, if not trillions of dollars, of resources out of Aboriginal land, and we still live in poverty. The arrangements do not favour us in terms of cultural heritage protection. They favour the big economic influences like the mining industry and other developers. And, and that's got to change. Just very briefly, in the meantime, until that is resolved... There should be a moratorium, absolute moratorium. Across the country? Absolutely. They don't like that, but we believe that it's important. Thank you. You certainly can't bring them back once they're gone. Uh, Daniel Hurst. Daniel Hurst from Guardian Australia. Hello. Um, uh, hello. Um, thanks for today. I'd like to ask, um, you obviously have um, had discussions with Minister Wyatt about the voice. Um, have you raised these issues with Prime Minister Morrison directly and what sort of no. response have you had? Okay. So you I have not raised them with Prime Minister Morrison, but I have raised them in the group. Mm. Um, and I've had very, you know, frank discussions. I think that I'm pleased that other people in the advisory group uh, can see my argument about the voice to Parliament, and I think that's growing support. Um, 
But it's not a matter for the minister just, you know, he's got to really hear uh, what our people are saying. And I think it's got to be, I think it can be a better process. So I guess my question, I just wanted to gain an insight of what you think the obstacle is, what the political obstacle is for the voice to parliament being fully adopted in the way you Well, propose. you have to have the strong leadership of the Prime Minister and the Cabinet, you know, and they've got to be prepared to stand up for it. We need to see a bit of backbone here and a bit of real commitment. That's what you need. Ken can't do it by himself. Do you get the sense that he's on board with it, but he's being obstructed by other elements within the government? Well, I don't know. I don't work on the, in, you know, the machinations that go on within or between political parties. I'm just a naive observer like you. Sure. <laughs> Thank you very much. Annabel Hennessy. Annabel Hennessy from the West Australian. Thank you um, for your speech today. Um, firstly, um, for, given your concerns with the um, uh, how the process has gone for the senior advisory um, group for The Voice, is it your intention to remain a member yes. of the group? And um, secondly, um, following the most recent Close the Gap announcement, um, Megan Davis, Roy R.C. and Noel Pearson um, all came out saying that they believed um, the Coalition of the Peaks did not have a mandate to speak on behalf of First Nations people. Um, should Minister Wyatt take on board what you've said today and make changes um, to the how, how the voice process is going, how do we reconcile differing opinions within First Nations community about who, in fact, does have a mandate to speak on their behalf. Yeah. So, um, no, I won't resign uh, from the advisory group. My view has always been it's better to be inside the tent making the argument, um, and that's what uh, I, I intend to do. Um, uh, in relation to the criticism by, you know, others um, about the Close the Gap Anyone could have gone to governments and expressed the concern that the Coalition of Peaks did in 2018. Anyone, any other Aboriginal group. So we weren't, we didn't have a monopoly, we just took the initiative. And, uh, you know, we have a great deal of experience as the Coalition of Peaks in the service delivery and the very real needs that are outstanding in our communities, whether it's housing, environmental health, health status, education, achievement, you name it, we know it. First-hand, nationwide, we have never said that another Aboriginal group or another Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander organisation does not have a legitimate role in terms of shared decision-making with government. And, you know, because we negotiated an intergovernmental agreement and we got every first minister in this country with the president of the local government association to sign with us, we have achieved an incredible agreement. Whether they like it or not, I'm disappointed that they don't support it, but I can't force their hand. All I could do, which is what we did in negotiating the agreement, was make sure that we had room for shared decision-making between our people and governments at every level, strengthening the Aboriginal community control sector to improve service delivery and make sure we could do the full breadth of services, for governments to reform and restructure, no longer business as usual in the way they engage with our people, 
and for data and information to be made available to our people in their negotiations with government. They are the four foundational issues in the Closing the Gap Agreement. The targets, everyone raves on about the targets. Targets don't drive change. All targets are, are a measure. And what, have, what has been achieved over the, uh, since 2008 with just everyone focusing on the targets? What has really been achieved? Nothing of any note. So it won't be targets that drive the change. It'll be the structural reforms reflected in the priority reforms that we have included in the national agreement. The Commonwealth's got a bit of an upper hand here because they want shared responsibility with the states. This has been an ongoing, eternal argument since Gough Whitlam set up the national department in the 70s. Right? The argument between Commonwealth and state and who pays. Always been a grey area, always shifting and passing the buck between them. We're sick of it. We're just absolutely sick to death of it. So we want federal government to fulfil its role and responsibility, which is a leadership role and it must continue. They have let the states get away with blue murder by giving them hundreds of millions of dollars with very poor accountability for how they have applied that directly for our benefit at the community level. A lot of those things have got to change and the Commonwealth does have to step up and take a leadership role. We've got two more questions and I'm hoping to squeeze them in before we get to the end. So Tim Shaw. Mr Turner, Tim Shaw, Director of the National Press Club. Uh, the Prime Minister and the National Cabinet have been a very strong nine-member voice. Do you see the issues that you've raised in today's lecture being carried through the National Cabinet and which territory or state, in your view, has been listening the closest to First Nations people? Yes. Uh, the National Cabinet has taken on closing the gap as a priority. It had two social areas, social policy areas, that it said it would continue uh, to carry, closing the gap and domestic violence. So we're very pleased about that. Um, so, yes, I think that uh, ultimately there is um, a role, and I would like the Prime Minister to be more involved and give his authority uh, to getting this sorted out. It's been going on for far too long. You know, I was at Barunga in 88 when Bob Hawke promised us a treaty, still waiting. You know, I could go on and on and on and give you a list, you know, long as my arm. The state or territory that's doing the best is the ACT, in my opinion. It, it has got its own elected Aboriginal voice that advises the government uh, on all matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Now, it's a small state, um, but I think that uh, the elected voice is a standout in the ACT. And Virginia Hausiger with the last question. Hello, Virginia Hausiger from University of Canberra's Broad Agenda and Broad Talk. Thank you so much for your powerful words. I just quickly want to take you on a slightly different path to finish up on. I can't let this opportunity pass without reflecting on the passing of one of Australia's most successful feminist le legislators, Susan Ryan. Given your very active work as a women's rights activist and your membership of the Women's Liberation Group decades ago, I just wonder if you could reflect for a moment on, on her, but also on the continuing lack of, of uh, gender diversity in Australia's leadership and perhaps even in some of the organisations you're involved in? Yes, thank you. Just a few small things there. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, very, very sad. I mean, Susan Ryan was, uh, you know, a role model for many of us in terms of Cabinet Minister and her stand uh, for the underdogs and particularly women and, uh, you know, so it was very sad. But, you know, we also had the Supreme Court judge in the United States and, of course, today, Helen Reddy. I am woman, so, you know, three strong uh, women uh, whose voices are are going to be missed uh, both domestically and globally. Um, and in Aboriginal affairs, or in the Australian context, far too, uh, far too poor a performance in the corporate boardrooms, in the corporations, uh, in terms of women's uh, leadership and being promoted and taken seriously, um, right across the board. You could say that was the case, and it's no different in Aboriginal affairs, although I must say that many of our organisations at the community level are run by our women, and, uh, and they do a fantastic job. And, uh, and, you know, we do have... If we're out bush and we're having a big meeting on country, uh, we will have women's meetings and we will have men's meetings. And... Um, but... You know, our bosses, our law bosses, can hold a lot of authority in uh, explaining to the men what needs to be done, why, when and how. Um, and, uh, and generally, they work things out, you know. So uh, we have a different role in some ways. We have a complementary role, traditionally, um, but I still think that you know, sometimes the men are a bit like other blokes in the community. <laughs> like, like blokes everywhere. Um, ladies and gentlemen, would you join me in thanking Pat Turner? I know that uh, I speak for both the, my colleagues at ANU and also for my colleagues in the press club on the board uh, in saying that the issues you've raised today, the powerful arguments you've put, have um, certainly made the case for much more urgency in this space after so long, and uh, we congratulate you for that. We thank you for making the third annual Australia and the World Lecture for ANU. And uh, on behalf of the press club, can I provide you with a, uh, an ongoing membership? Oh, thank you. Um, you're welcome back here at any I'll time. I'll be a nuisance. <laughs> Never. And uh, please accept these flowers as well. Oh, they're beautiful. Thank you. And it was such an honour. Thanks so much to Pat Turner AM for her exceptional address and insightful contributions. Listeners, before we let you go, don't forget to reach out to us. We're on Facebook under Policy Forum Pod, on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, that's APPS Policy Forum, or send us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. And don't forget to subscribe. You can find Democracy Sausage on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite podcasts from. We'll be back later in the week with the Democracy Sausage Extra, but until then, bye for now.
Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.